0: Um, And if you can all stand for the scripture reading. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Thank you. THMC, good seeing you guys again. I think it's, uh, gosh, when was the last time that I was here? Was it like April? March? Yeah, I feel like it's been like a year. Uh, And maybe it's because uh, we're in a new venue, a new setting, but uh, I, you know, um, I actually prefer more intimate settings. Uh, To me, uh, church is really about family. Um, The worship service is just a means for us to, the activity of what we engage in as the family. And uh, for me, I, I much rather prefer a much more intimate setting, and um, I love the fact that you guys are, you know, continuing to pursue God in the midst of, you know, I know there's been some uh, geographic changes and locations, but I've also heard that you guys have landed on a new home uh, by uh, Chateau, Chateau Place, which is where I used to live. I lived on Virgil and, like, 4th Street back when I was, uh, yeah, when I used to live in K-Town. And so... Um, a clicker is being presented to me, so I will <clears throat> use it. Uh, so congratulations on your new home, and uh, so good to be with you guys again. I, I actually wanted to spend a couple of moments. Um, we were worshiping, and I was just praying, and I just felt the Lord stirring my heart, and this is kind of off script. This is not planned in any way, but can we just take a moment just to pray one more time? I want you guys to pray for your church. And I want you to specifically pray for this family, uh, for the English ministry of THMC. And I just want you to ask, Lord, what is on your heart for us as a family? What is on your heart for us as a ministry? And Lord, above and beyond my own heart, what I think about my brothers and sisters, and what I think about this family called THMC-EM, I want to know what's on your heart. You know, when our prayers are aligned to the will of God, that's, what, that's when things begin to move in the kingdom. Can I get an amen? Oftentimes, we have our own agendas and our own wills, and sometimes it's not always in alignment with the will of God or the desire of God. And That's why it's so important for us to pray. You know, as God is kind of resetting this ministry, Lord, what's on your heart? What's in your heart for THMC? What's on your heart for THMC EM? I uh, want you guys to just spend a minute or two. Just pray. If you pray in the spirit, I want to encourage you to do so. If you pray out loud, you can do so. You can pray quietly, you can do so. But just ask, Lord, I want to know the heart of God from, for this ministry. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we make room for you. we make space for you. Holy Spirit, would you take the things that are of Jesus and make them known to us? Would you take the things that are on the heart of God and make them known to us? God, we know more than any person in this room, you love this church. You love this ministry, you love the people here. and apart from your individual desires for them, your individual love for them, Lord, I pray that you would unveil your heart for this collective group of people that you've called to become a family. So God, would you just make your heart known? Would you make your will known? Would you make your desire for THMC known? And as we um, are praying that prayer, I just, I feel like the Lord is just stirring, just in me, this this prompting and this conviction. And he just wants to encourage you, THMC, that God always starts with the remnant. God always builds with the remnant. You know, if you look at the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, again, this is nowhere in my message, (laughs) But in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, God took a disenfranchised, dispersed, disparaged group of exiles, a remnant. And he led them on a journey to rebuild not only the temple, but the foundation of that temple. You know what that foundation of that temple was? It was actually by restoring proper worship and to actually restore the primacy of prayer. And the word of God. And I just feel like God is um, just wanting to encourage you guys, you know. Um, I know that through the transitions of COVID, through the transitions of what took place, you know, and the geographic location changes and people that have come and gone, um, that there is always an inkling of hope because we know that God builds with the remnant. Can I get an amen? Yeah. But the blueprint has already been laid out. Yeah. So we never sacrifice, right, in our efforts to build a church. Like, we must contend in the place of worship, and we must contend in the place of prayer. And our foundation has to be rooted in the word of God. Can I get an amen? Because that's what Ezra did. You know, in his time, before Nehemiah comes, he restored proper worship and proper worship of, uh, to the Lord. And I just feel like the Lord is saying, don't, whether there's 10 people here, all right or a hundred, right? just worship me, right? worship me in spirit and in truth, not about the pageantry, not about production, right It's not even about how great the worship team just just worship me in spirit and in truth, and that's where we that's where we begin, and that's where we start. Can I get an amen? yeah, and um yeah, I just um And I'm sure it will come to me. But um, I just want to take a moment right now just to pray for you guys. God, I just want to pray that you would give hope to this ministry. And I I pray, I just sense that there's something coming in the seasons ahead um, where they're going to have to be really flexible and they're going to have to really be open to the movement of God and the direction of God in their life, not just individually, but collectively here as a ministry. Um, God, that you're really taking them to back to the essence of church, the essence of worship, the essence of what the gathering is really about. And I just pray that they will not be caught in the old skin, Lord, but that they will be willing to be stretched Uh, experience, God, just a a renewal in the wineskin of whatever the church might look like uh, so that they can really position themselves for a season of renewal that I pray and I hope will come in the seasons ahead. Lord, um, I pray that you would also remind the people of THMC that even though they might not be without a human pastor, That, Lord Jesus, you have never stopped shepherding this church, Lord. And that, as Eliza said in our prayer, God, there's never a time or a season where you have not been with us, where you have not have walked with us. So I just pray, good shepherd, that you would make yourself even more fully known to the people here at THMC. And that even as people are coming and, and offering the word, That, Lord, that it's the faithful presence of Christ, our good shepherd, that is leading them through, God, even this season of transition and change. So, God, we just lift up this time to you. And would you be the one to instruct us and teach us through your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, sometimes you just have to make space for God to... Share what's on his heart, right? Um, So that being said, um, the title of my message today is, The Way of God is the Wilderness. The Way of God is the Wilderness. And it's based off of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to be looking at one more verse in verse 16. But I want to begin this morning by asking you guys a question. Do you guys ever heard of the term, a rite of passage? A rite of passage, not our right as in my right to vote, right? But R-I-T-E, rite of passage, right? And basically the definition according to the Webster Dictionary is like an event or an experience or even a ceremony uh, that a person goes through in order to transition from one phase of their life to the next, Sometimes this is a ceremony, sometimes this is like a, an experience, sometimes this is just kind of like a, uh, an, an event that someone goes through where they kind of shift from one stage of their life into the next. So, for example, do you guys know that puberty is a rite of passage? I have an 11-year-old son, he's my second child, and, uh, you know, when he greets me this morning, you know, he still has a very soft and gentle voice and he says, hi, daddy, right? And I know there's a time that's coming very soon, right, because I could tell he's starting to... Kind of show some signs, right? Or he's a little extra smellier these days. And uh, I know there's going to come a time where he's going to come into the kitchen and instead of saying, hi, daddy, he's going to be like, hi, dad, right? We call that puberty, right? And puberty is a rite of passage that kids must go through to transition from being a child to becoming an adult, right? It's that middle phase. If you guys, uh, my wife's studying to be a psychologist right now. She just finished her third year of a doctor program. Uh, she has these tests this week. It's called the comprehensive exams. Everything she's learned in the last three years, she's going to get tested on. If she fails, she gets dropped from the program. So she is stressed out like crazy. So it is, this is now her rite of passage. In order for her to become a licensed psychologist, the rite of passage is that she must pass what's called the comps or the comprehensive exams. Um, any Marines in the house? Okay. If you want to be a U.S. Marine, you also have to go through right rite of passage, and that rite of passage is appropriately dubbed the crucible. I won't say the crucible; uh, it just sounds so fun, right, and so relaxing, right? Well, the crucible is an endurance test that's actually fifty-four hours long. It covers about forty-eight miles of terrain, and uh, it's forty-five pounds of gear that they're carrying throughout the whole duration. In the whole duration of those fifty-four hours, you only get three meal kits, right? you get the total of those 54 hours, barely six to eight hours of sleep. I actually um, shared this in another illustration and a U.S. Marine came up to me and he said, six to eight hours is way too generous. It was more like three to four, right? Because you have like sounds of like gunfire and bombs exploding. That's like, they're, they're like, it's like, you, it's very hard for you to sleep. And they have 36 warrior stations, twenty-nine team exercises. And it's a test that's designed to punish you and test you physically, mentally, emotionally, right? And the reason why I share this with you is because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are someone that considers themselves a follower of the way, you also have a rite of passage that you must go through. You also have a crucible experience that you must also endure. And Unlike the U.S. Marine test of the crucible, the Bible calls it something else. The Bible actually calls it what? The wilderness. The wilderness is a place where you will experience prolonged, this is the key, prolonged spiritual dryness. It is a place where you're going to experience spiritual lethargy and fatigue like, It's going to be very hard for you to be motivated to engage in God's word and pray, come to church even. The wilderness is a place where you feel disoriented and confused. Some people actually experience, um, because this is such a long season of all of those things, they actually experience high anxiety and even depression. Uh, There's a loss of certainty The wilderness is a place where you're going to have more questions than you have answers. It is a place where you have more doubt than you actually have faith. And it's a season where God actually feels really distant from you. And he feels really absent. And that's why it leaves so many people who go through a prolonged season of the crucible, or should I say wilderness, to actually maybe even give up on God. And this whole thing called Christianity. And maybe even feel like, I just want to drop out of church. Or I want to drop out of faith. And I don't want to go to the small group anymore. And the question is, if you look at kind of the symptoms or the characteristic experiences of what one person experienced when they go through the wilderness. Why on earth would God send us to a place like that? Why by God's design? Okay? Why by God's design and by intentionality and purpose, would he have us go through a season where we're experiencing those things? Why does God take us through the wilderness? Why does the way of God lead through the wilderness? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is our text for today, very interesting passage. Um, the Israelites had actually gone through their 40-year wandering in the wilderness, and they're actually about to cross over into the promised land. So they're like sitting camp on the edge of the Jordan River, and they're just a stone throw away from entering into the promised land. And God actually has them sit down and He says, before you go forward, I want you to stop. And instead of going forward, I actually want you to take this time and reflect, and I want you to look back. And he says, I want you to examine the, your wilderness journey and i want you to try to reflect and see what was i trying to teach you what was i trying to instill in you what was i trying to form in you israel while i had you here for these 40 years this is because it's going to be very important that you understand those things before you cross over into your promised land into what's next so there is a design Right? There's a purpose, there's a rhyme and a reason to why God has us go through seasons like this. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 gives us the whole spiel on that. And so we're going to just look at, for the sake of time, three reasons as to why God sends us into the wilderness. Three, I guess, divine designs as to why God has us go through a wilderness experience. So, here's the first point of today's message. And it's this. This is the first purpose or design to the wilderness experiences that the wilderness is actually a place of sanctification. Everyone say sanctification, right? It's a big fancy theological word, but it's just about becoming us becoming more like Jesus. And where do I see this? Look at Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, the second half of verse two, and it says this: He says, "You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you into the forty years of those wilderness." So that he might humble you, and this is what he says, so that he might test you to know what is in your heart. To actually shed light to what is in your heart. To actually draw and bring out to the surface what's been lurking beneath the surface there all of this time. In other words, the design of the wilderness is to help you to see What are some of the harmful things, the broken things, the things that need proper restoration, healing, forgiveness? What is the type of maybe even sin, I might add, that has been lurking there beneath the surface this whole time that is actually causing toxicity and even prolonged brokenness, right? And deformation rather than our formation to Christ, the wilderness, ironically, is the place where that stuff comes to the surface. You know, to illustrate this for you, I came across this uh, article, a true story. Back in the summer of 2007, in the great state of Florida, they had a landmark, like, historic drought. I mean, you, you know, California has been in a severe drought until we got, like, crazy amounts of rain this past year, right? Um, but that year in Florida, the drought was so severe. The largest lake that they have in Florida, which is Lake Okeechobee, right, the shoreline receded in a mile in, right? I mean, that's how much dr- the water dried up. Like the, the shoreline, they measured it. it. It actually came in in some parts of the lake a mile in. And what was really fascinating is that under the severe drought, as the waters receded, conservationists and scientists, they discovered for the very first time that all along beneath the surface of, the, of this lake, they found a broken sewage pipeline that was spewing tons of waste into that freshwater lake. People swim, fish, you know, boat along that lake, when they had no idea all this toxicity was actually spewing into that lake. They found multiple boats that had been sunk by a hurricane that was just, you know, dumping large amounts of oil, right, into the lake. They found what? Actually, canisters of pollutants that people decided to just discard into the lake because it's a huge lake, Right? And the, the irony is that no one would have known for all of those years that all of that toxicity, all of those pollutants, all of those bad things was actually contaminating that lake unless the, the great state of Florida had gone through that kind of severe drought. And it's kind of a, par, a, a parallel or even a parable, I would say, to actually correlate to the truth of Scripture. In the sense that it's actually in seasons when we experience prolonged drought, right? That these things that are lurking beneath the surface of our hearts, that they actually come to form. And they come to the surface and they come to be revealed. So the question I want to ask you is this. When you think about past seasons of wilderness in your life, or perhaps the current season that you are going through, what has God brought up to the surface? What has God in His kindness, not in His judgment, in His kindness and mercy and grace, allowed you to see about what's been lurking beneath that surface of your heart all this time? What is God not trying to harm you but to help you? What has He allowed? What has He kind of shown like uh, a shine, a flashlight, into the, the dark crevices of your heart to see what's been lurking there? That's been harming your relationships, your marriage? that's causing you to fall into unhealthy patterns of behavior, that's making you not just further and further away from God, but it's actually causing you to experience even more brokenness inside your life and outside your life? I just want to let that question sit for a moment. And to kind of help you process this, I came across this book called Invitation to Journey. It's kind of a classic uh, on spiritual formation. It's written by this man named Dr. Robert Mulholland. And in this book, he actually categorizes four different types of sin, you know? And a lot of times when we think of sin, um, we think of what's traditionally known as gross sins. Everyone say gross sins. Kind of say it like it's like gross, like gross sins, right? Yes, yes, you right? It's not that. It's not that kind of gross sins, but this is immoral sins. This is the kind of sins that even society, even if they were not Christian, they would agree, like, that's immoral, right? Like murdering someone, that's immoral. Like stealing from someone, that's immoral, right? Like cheating on your spouse, that, like that's immoral. Even society would agree, although that's kind of becoming a gray area as well, right? Um, th- this is just very clear; it's black and white, right? Uh, gross sins are the types of sins. If you grew up churched and you went to like church retreats, do you guys remember like doing church retreat skits, right? Am I, am I the only person that grew up in the 80s and 90s of church? Right? And, and, and my, my claim to flame was that I, I was the, the, the um I won multiple competitions of, uh, of skit, skit retreats, you know? And, and do you guys notice that in those skit retreats, we're always characterizing sin as the promiscuous woman? The guy who's always drinking and smoking, right? Or the guy, or like, you know, you guys don't know, the drug dealer, the gang member who had a bandana backwards, right? Like, that's how we always characterize sin, right? That's kind of more in the category of gross sins. But for Christians living in America, and I would even say Christians living in Southern California, it's not gross sin that's the problem for us. Don't get me wrong, we struggle with those things too. The area that we really need to examine our lives for it's not in the area of gross sins, but what Mulholland calls our trust structures. Our trust structures. That's an interesting name for sin, right? And our trust structures are basically, if you come from a reform background, this is what uh, Tim Keller would call the counterfeit gods or the idols of your heart. In psychology, we might call these our attachments. Thomas Keating actually call these our emotional programs for happiness. The things that we go to, when we feel sad, when we feel lonely, when we feel afraid or broken, this is what we run to. See, the problem with trust structures is that they're not always bad things. Right? The problem with trust structures is that they're not inherently evil things. You know, your spouse or your family or your kids could become trust structures. Your bank account could become your trust structure. Your job or your title at work could become your trust structure. These are all good things. They're all necessary things, right? But when good things become main things and crowd out the place of the one true thing, namely Jesus in our lives, then we become in violation of what is known as the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The greatest temptation for all of us living as Christians in the West, it's not immoral and gross sins. It's the idols of our hearts that occupy space for us to love God more, to have more devotion to God. It's those things that when we go through seasons of the wilderness, this is what God is trying to expose. This is what he's trying to bring to the surface. All right. Are you guys with me? And as we come to understand those things and we begin to repent of them, then we begin to make more space in our heart for love, for devotion, and affection for Jesus in our lives. Can I get an amen? Secondly, the wilderness is not just a place of sanctification. The wilderness is a place of maturation, right? Maturation. My preaching professor will be so proud of me that I am putting some rhyme and rhythm into some of my uh, my points here, right? Um, what do I mean by maturation? I'm specifically talking about the maturation of faith, okay? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and look at verse 2. I also have it down here on the screen. It says, You shall remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years so that he might, what? Humble you, right? Humble you. And the purpose of that humbling was well, so that you could know that man cannot live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If I'm paraphrasing here, right? Moses, as he's writing Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, he's basically saying, look, the reason why God sent you into the wilderness is so that you would be put into a position where you have to depend on God, where you have to rely on him, where he has to become your ultimate trust, structure so that you know that you can't just live on your own and buy bread alone but that you know clinging that you have to live clinging to every word that not only comes from God but you have to cling to God that's the basic essential design for the wilderness experience okay and by actually causing you to lean into God more to rely upon God more to depend and trust him more what he is doing is he's trying to to mature and deepen this thing called Faith. Do you know faith has different levels, different categories as well? Um, This is from um, uh, just another, uh, if I'm just kind of paraphrasing some um, theories of faith in spiritual formation. This is kind of the three levels. Number one, there's elementary faith. Elementary faith is faith having the right beliefs that Jesus is the son of God, that he came, he died, Right? He paid the ultimate penalty for your sins. He not only died, but he also resurrected. He ascended into heaven, and now the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit lives in your life,? Right? When you believe these things, right, and when you actually came to the truth of these things, that's when you actually stepped foot into the kingdom, and you, you had this thing called faith, but it was still very elementary faith. Okay? Sadly, most Christians never graduate from elementary school, right? Right? they just had, I got my ticket to heaven. I have my fire insurance from hell. And I'm just content with just living, living right here in elementary school. Like, or like Peter Pan. Right? I don't want to ever grow up. right? No, that's, that, that's, that's the Toys R Us jingle. Right? I don't want to grow up. right? right? And Peter Pan, <laughs> Never, Neverland. Very similar. We want to be kind of locked into the state of persistent immaturity. But ultimately... If we advance to the next level, we call to, we come and arrive at the setting called the faith of religion, or religious faith.? Okay? I don't mean religious in the pharisaical sense, but it's religious called, it's called religious faith because it's a faith that's very outward. It's very action-centered. It's like not, not "I just want to know God, but now I want to serve God. I want to do things for God. Right, and the faith of religion sometimes the downside of it is that it's like this, you know. It's like we kind of have this very uh, formulaic way of understanding faith, like a quid pro quo. Like if I do this, then God will do this. We have this formula. Like if I do my quiet time every day, then God will bless me. If I tithe, then God will bless me with even greater finances. If I save myself for marriage, then God is going to bless me with a wonderful spouse. Uh, in Christendom and evangelicalism, we call this biblical principles for living. It's very true, right? Like these are, these are true in one sense, that they are wisdom that's actually in the book of Proverbs, that's in the accounts from Genesis to Revelation. But what happens when you actually do and follow these principles And you don't get the intended or desired outcome. What happens when you obey and you decide to quit your job and step out in faith into some other thing, some other adventure that God, you feel like is calling you out to? And instead of getting a better job or another promotion, you get a really, really sucky hard experience trying to pursue this new assignment that God has for you. What happens when you choose to make the make the hard choice to honor god and instead of your finances going up you find that your finances are actually going down and you're actually going into a seasons of financial insecurity and instability what happens when you make the hard choice to actually obey god and to do what is said according to the scripture and yet some calamity comes knocking on your door a cancer diagnosis a family member passes away what happens when you do the right thing and you seemingly seem to be rewarded with a wrong result or reward? Because this happens in Christianity. I, 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 let me tell you right now, okay? If whatever preachers that have come here and said, if you just do this and then, then this will happen, um, it's true that there, there is an element if, of promises of Scripture, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. There is that. But it is not that simple. And as in following Jesus for the last 20 years, I can tell you right now, I've made hard decisions. I've made hard choices to obey God. I've stepped out in faith. But I've always haven't been rewarded with the right results or what I thought was going to be the right results. See, this is where the wilderness comes in. Because in the wilderness begins to sort of reveal, how much do I trust God? Or is my trust and my faith in God based on circumstantial results? Or whether he rewards me, or whether he blesses me, or whether I get what I feel like I want? Right? or what I think I even deserve, because a lot of Christians, we, 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 we get entitled. <laughs> I've served you, Lord. Pastors especially. I served you, Lord, for this many years, and, and this, is, this is what I get, right? This is classic case of faith of religion. It's not just for pastors. It's for people uh, who, for so many years, God, I've served you. I did these things for you. I made hard choices. I sacrificed. I gave to the church, and yet this is what I get in response, then my, my question right in those moments is, which God were you really worshiping? Right? Which God were you really serving? Which God were you, were you really following? If, if our faith is based on what we're going to, our, 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 our ROI, our return on investment from what God's going to give back to us, then that is still very much not the place where God wants us to stay. I would still consider that maybe in the category of junior high school faith. Whereas God wants to graduate us, right? And graduation and promotion in the spirit is not about going higher. It's about going lower and going deeper. The places of humility, dependence, and trust in the Lord. Can I get an amen? Right? Where even if God, you were to take this away, I will still worship you. Even if I don't get this outcome right now, I trust that somehow in the end that you're going to work it out. That even if our church has gone through this kind of transition, I trust And I believe, and I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to hope in you. The wilderness is a season and a time where you're going to experience scarcity, limitation, where you feel trapped, where you feel like, God, I'm not getting what I think I deserve or what I want. And yet you will be confronted with the question, do you still trust me? Will you still worship me? Will you still pray? Will you still believe? Will you still say that I am good? It's the ultimate, ultimate test where we can examine where we are really in our faith. Because what the Lord desires from us is that place of deep faith. Have you been around 60 people, 60-year-old people who have followed Jesus for many, many years, who've experienced both the highs and lows of life? When I'm around them, you know, they radiate this presence. My mentor is like that. Medical doctor, right? Almost lost everything, right? Only even his family. And somehow when he came out on the other side of those seasons of trials, he discovered one thing. Everything I have in my life pales in comparison to who Jesus is. And now as he's in his 60s, he just radiates this non-anxious presence. He's never high, never too low, never shaken by the circumstances of life. He's just so even keel. And when I'm just around him, I'm just like, ah, that's, that's where I want to be. It might take me 20 more years, but that's where I want to be. That's where God wants us to be. Can I get an amen? Last but not least, <laughs> the wilderness is a place of not only maturation, but it's a place of preparation. It's a place of preparation. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 6. God says, I gave you manna So that you could eat in the wilderness to humble you, to test you. We talked about that in the first two points. But then he says, so that in the end, it might go well with you. That in the end, whatever happened and whatever was trained, whatever was shaped, whatever was formed in the wilderness season, that this is going to help prepare you for what is coming next. For your time in the promised land in the case of Israel. And when I look at the scripture, right? I see this pattern that wilderness is a place of preparation, right? Um, King David, before he ascended to the throne, right? Yes, he was anointed. Does he go straight to the throne? No, he goes straight into a wilderness journey and wanderings. Apostle Paul, right? Before, uh, you know, after he comes to faith and he has that encounter with God on the road to Damascus, right? Does he go straight into ministry? No, he goes straight into the desert of the wilderness of Arabia, right? Even Jesus, right? Before he began his ministry, He goes into the wilderness. And there's this theme of the wilderness as this place of preparation. And to kind of elaborate on that a little bit more, this is the scriptural pattern that I see. The preparation that God is doing, there's many things. But there's three things that God is doing in the wilderness, okay? One, there's an identity that's given, okay? And then two, this is the key part of the wilderness. That identity is put to the test. And then thirdly, out of the identity that has been forged in that person or in that nation, then they are launched out into their call or their assignment. This is the pattern. So, for example, Israel, Exodus chapter 19, right? They come to Mount Sinai, and God says to them this. He says, hey, you are no longer a nation of slaves, but I now give to you a new identity. You will be a nation of what? Priests, right? Right? You are no longer orphans in Egypt, but now you are my treasured possession, my beloved ones, right? And he says, you're going to become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's giving them a new identity. But right after Mount Sinai, when that identity is given, then the 40 years happens, right? And they go through this 40-year journey in the wilderness where their identity is put to the test, right? Their faith is put to the test. But then eventually they come out of that season and they're launched into their calling, their assignment, their inheritance, the promised land. This theme reappears in the true Israel. When Jesus arrives on the scene, what happens in Matthew 3, right? He's being baptized, right, in the Jordan River and God declares his identity over Jesus. This is my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That identity is given and reestablished. But right after that, in the next chapter, Matthew chapter four, Jesus then goes into the wilderness. The identity is put to the test. Or for 40 days, not 40 years, but 40 days, he's put to the test, right? And if you notice, if you actually study the temptation passages, this wasn't just a test of faith. It was actually a test of identity. Because Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are truly the son of God, he says it twice, if you are truly the son of man, the son of God, then do this. Turn these breads uh, stones into bread, right? It's a testing of and a questioning and a clarifying of identity. But right after that, Jesus then emerges out of the wilderness, filled with the Spirit's power, as it says in the Gospel of Mark, and he launches into his calling. So you see the thematic pattern, right, of the wilderness as the place of Preparation. One of my favorite movies in this season, like, I don't know, these days, come on, like, Cocaine Bear and, like, Fast and Furious X. I mean, no offense if you guys really love that movie, but I'm just like, come on. I, like, can, I, can I get some movies here that have a little bit of depth? I mean, I felt like, uh, what, what movie did I watch with my son um, oh, recently? I watched uh, Super Mario Brothers, and it, it's it's great. I had nostalgia watching it, but... You know, I, I like movies that have um, kind of like depth and substance and it makes you think. And there's this one movie that I came across in the last year or two. It's the movie Dune. And I, I was like, I don't know what it is, but this movie, I rarely rewatch movies. But I watched it, rewatched it three times now, right? Because there's something about this movie that so deeply resonates with me and the season that I've been in. Uh, just put it put it in a nutshell, I feel like I've been in a long, prolonged wilderness season for the last six years of my life, right? Just to kind of paint the picture. I, even though I'm here preaching and doing all these things, I feel like I'm in, in this journey of like a long six-year wilderness experience that God has taken me through. And in this movie, right, the main character, Paul Atreides, he's born of royalty, right? He's born of royalty. He's the heir to the house of Atreides. And uh, how many of you guys have watched this? Because I'm going to give you guys, okay. Spoiler alert, okay? <laughs> Paul ends up experiencing catastrophic loss, right? He has a loved one be killed. Uh, Basically, the house of Atreides basically falls. And interestingly enough, he's then thrust into the desert dunes, right, of this uh, planet called, uh, what was the name of the planet? I've got to look at my notes again. I always butcher the name, right? Um, Basically, he goes into the desert, okay, in the wilderness for a long period of time. But it's actually as he's in the dunes of the desert, that he really discovers that he is not just Paul Atreides. He discovers his true identity as the Kwisak Haderach, right? This messianic figure. And that's when he begins to understand, give it with my, my true identity, what his ultimate purpose and assignment and calling is, which doesn't come out in the first movie, but I think will be explored in the second movie. And I share this with you because... You know, as I land this message, if the story sounds familiar to you, it shouldn't, right? Because some might say this is a story of Moses who goes into a, a season of 40 years in the desert where he discovers that his true identity is not an Egyptian but that he's an Israelite and that he's actually called to be a leader of his people. It's, this is not just a story of King David and Paul like I shared with you earlier. This is the story of Jesus. Not just the Jesus who went to the wilderness for 40 days, but the Jesus who actually left heaven to come down to earth, to come to the wilderness and the desert that is called earth, to offer his life for us, right? And it's actually in that experience where Jesus comes into his true call and identity as the Messiah, and therefore he fulfills his mission to reconcile God's people back onto himself. So again, if you find yourself in the wilderness right now, may there be hope for you. That is just not for your sanctification. It's not just for your maturation, but there is a preparation, there's a prepared work that is being done. And that's what I'm sensing with the Lord for me is that there is a deeper work that God is doing that is leading to my own personal renewal and wholeness in Christ. And that is leading me to a place of greater trust where I I have no choice but to trust Him. But I also sense that there is a deeper work of preparation for ministry beyond even what I'm doing now. And, um, And I just hope that that would offer some measure of hope and solace if you guys find yourself there. Can I get an amen? If we can just close our eyes for a minute, <clears throat> I just want to ask: just um, if if you find yourself. In a season where you feel like you are in the wilderness, where you feel kind of distant from God, you feel like there's just very um, motivation is lacking, you feel disoriented, you feel confused, whether you're a leader, whether you've been at this church for I don't know how many years, just in an honest moment before God, if you find yourself there, can I just invite you to place your hands over your heart because I want to pray for you. Yeah. I just want to pray for you. And before I pray, I just want you to pray, God, I surrender to the work that you are doing in my life. That even though the way of God is taking me through this painful wilderness season in my life, I just feel so desolate. God, I trust that there's a purpose for me, that you have a purpose, God, for why I am going through what I am going through. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would just reveal areas, God, where there's pain and there's brokenness, where it has been ravaged, Lord, by the effects of sin, that you would make these things known so that we can come to you and we can experience greater healing and wholeness and restoration in you. God, I pray that for some of us, Lord, we've been stripped of some of the very things that we were able to lean into, that we were considered our trust structures. And I just pray, whether it's our spouse, whether it was a bank account, whether it was a position, a role, a job, as we find ourselves in a place where we are experiencing a crisis of limitation, may we lean more into you and trust that you are doing something, God. And I pray that all of the lies of the enemy that's saying your God cannot be trusted, your God is not good. How could he allow such things to happen in your life? I pray that the voice of God will be louder than the lies of the enemy. And I pray that you would give your people hope today that there is a deeper preparation, God, for what you desire for them to step into in the season ahead. That even though they're not seeing it, even though it doesn't make any sense, God, may they really rest assured in the promise that even if the Son of Man, Jesus himself, had to go through a time and a season of preparation, not just the 40 years in the, de- the 40 days in the desert. 30 years of life before he actually launched into his ministry. Those were all seasons of preparation, God. How much more, God, will you not prepare us? Will you not take the time to form us, to forge us, to sanctify us, God, by your Spirit's power? So, Lord, would you continue to let faith arise? the hearts of my brothers and sisters and may they know they are never alone in the wilderness god and may this community be a fellow travelers be fellow travelers god even through the journey even though the way of god might lead them through the wilderness to know that they are not traveling alone we thank you we love you in jesus name we pray amen